You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. It's wonderful to have your company yet again as we pull apart the beautiful world of leadership. I have a real treat for you in this episode. My guest is the CEO of the Institute of Managers and Leaders Australia and New Zealand, His name's David, but he wouldn't tell me his last name. Well, at least, he wouldn't tell me how to pronounce it. You'll have to wait for his explanation of that. David and I had a terrific, sweeping conversation about the discipline of leadership, what it means, and how we as individuals can approach our own growth and understanding. I hope you enjoy my conversation with David, last name to be confirmed. David, welcome to the Team Guru podcast. Before I give you a chance to talk, you've put me in a horrible situation because normally I would say David last name, but I don't know how to pronounce your last name and you won't tell me until we press record. So I'm going to have a crack. It's David Pish. Yeah. Well, it's not actually, but um, (laughs) but one of the things I was uh, taught at a very young age is always put the interviewer on the back foot before you start an interview. (laughs) Transfer the pressure. Mate, I think that's when you're being interviewed by the police, (laughs) not by some kind podcast host. I am from Manchester, so police interviews were a part of my youth. (laughs) All right, so it's not David Peach. What is it? Oh, well, look, it's always a lovely icebreaker when I uh, present at conferences about leadership, which I do do a fair bit. So um, on the night before my wedding, the marriage to my, uh, my beautiful wife, who is from Germany, we spun a coin to decide whose surname we took did you? the next morning. We did. We got married in London and uh, quite literally the night before we got married, we spun a coin to decide whose surname we would take and I lost. Wow. So I have ended up- wife's surname. I did indeed. So um, I've ended up with a German surname. Right. So it's definitely not Pish, yep. although I get Pish all the time. I also get Pick yep. and I will answer to both of those things, but it's actually Pich because you have to have that guttural German CH- so the the beautiful end to the story that I tell is that I've ended up with a surname that I can't pronounce. That is a great story. I'm glad you dressed it up that way. I'm glad we went down that path. Now, if I was to have taken my wife's surname <laughs> when I got married, we were married seven years ago, I would still be getting daily messages from my mates about yeah, that. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, were yeah. your mates relentless yeah, when you took your uh, wife's name? No, actually, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, look, the, the interesting thing about taking your, your wife's surname, so first of all, something you probably have to understand about me is I don't really believe in that whole kind of name identity thing. I think it's total nonsense. I'm also a huge advocate for equality and inclusion and those kind of things. So the idea that the man would always give the woman his surname to me is a bit of anathema. The one thing that I found really quite strange about a couple of my friends, and not many of them, because most of them know that I wouldn't I really don't care. Most of them are civilized. Are they? That's, that's probably that. But a couple of my friends talked about identity. Yeah. And um, I do think there's a there's a beautiful philosophical discussion, which I quite often have over with my friends and, and people that come over for dinner, about this idea of identity being wrapped up with name. And I don't subscribe don't to that. that. Not remotely, no. And I don't... Um, so, well, well, if it is, what about all the women who change their name yeah. when they get married? Well, they just have to because that's what's done. Well... Um, I would challenge whether they have to or not, of course. Um, I think tradition says that they typically do. And um, I did an interview, I did an interview yesterday actually with a a magazine and we had a whole- Not your first? (laughs) Your first podcast. (laughs) Um, And and a very, very good podcast, by the way. But I had an interview yesterday with a magazine about leadership and we got onto the subject of tradition. And one of the things that I said was that in leadership, I think it's beholden on us to rebel where possible- against tradition. So I like to think that I've started that with the change of my name. I, I think tradition is there to be broken. And um, if there are any guys listening who are on the verge of getting married, think about either choosing a completely different name or taking your wife's name just to redress the balance. That's a very nice story. I actually had my own wife back in 87, number 87 of the podcast, and we started off with a bit of banter yeah, about right. the name. So some listeners would have heard about this, but when we got married, we, my wife 
hesitated. She's yeah, a right. full-blown professional. She has a, a, a very well-developed career and a name. Yeah. And we we kind of came to this arrangement that she would take my name if I wore a wedding ring because I'm a kind of a no jewelry <laughs> guy. And as you can see, I'm not wearing a wedding ring. Yeah, so right. we, we've kind of landed in this this arrangement where I sometimes wear a wedding ring and she sometimes uses my name. <laughs> so she is very much Sally Rayner on at professionally, yeah, right. and uh, and on Facebook and all those places where it matters. But she's Sally Frizzell uh, on passports and in a few other places. The kids aren't confused by it, and yeah, and, right. and there's no confusion around that. But it is such an interesting topic, it is. and it's not a it's not just a no-brainer anymore like it used to be. Absolutely. There, there's, there's all sorts of layers around it. For my wife, it was professional identity in a yeah. lot of ways, but there might be a lot of reasons that people balk at that course. tradition. Yeah, no, of course. And I've also got two daughters, of course, and um, I think the more we bring alternatives mm. into the world, whatever those are, I mean, names is only a very, very small one, but the more we say that just because things have always been done one way, that isn't necessarily how they should be done in the future. I think that is a good thing wherever you land on whatever topic you're talking about i think convention is there not necessarily to be followed yeah it's a really nice thought you know i like to think of myself as a progressive guy yeah. a, a modern guy but there are things like that yeah that i would mourn my name i don't know if you had to mourn your name and so i, I have a bunch of cousins but none of my male cousins were quality enough to <laughs> to breed boys I'm the only guy in my family with boys. So the Frizzell name rests with my two boys. You just met one of yeah. them. And there was something real. I remember having a conversation with my dad about it after I'd had my second boy. And I kind of said to him, are you happy that I've got two boys now? Carry on the name. And, and he said, I am. I am happy about yeah. that. Because he was, he was the, the third of three brothers and no other boys came out of that who developed boys. So the, yeah. the Frizzell name would have ended with me if I didn't have boys. Yeah. And as much as I like to be this modern guy, there's something I really value in that. And I would struggle not to do that. So that makes me question my own ability yeah. to let go of those, in some ways, very meaningless traditions. I mean, it's, it, I mean we're, we're talking about names. What a fantastic podcast about names. <laughs> but it's, the concept is inherently discriminatory. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, it goes to a number of discriminatory habits and traditions, you know, the I'm English, as you can tell from the, you know the, my accent, but you know this idea of passing things down on the male line is inherently discriminatory. And anything, my view is anything that we can do to redress that balance. I am a big believer in positive discrimination, simply because there's been so much discrimination yeah. for so long yeah. that you have to have a period of what what I class as redress mm -hmm. to redress the balance. Yeah. So I believe in a very, very tiny way that I've done a little bit towards redressing something that has been incredibly imbalanced for so long, but it's horses for courses, you know, and whatever works, works. It's a fantastic conversation. Now, that, that is not on my list of questions. <laughs> we were not supposed to spend seven minutes talking about that, but fantastic nonetheless. David, you're the CEO of the Institute of Managers and Leaders Australia and New Zealand. And incidentally, there are two words in that title that, that get me most excited. Have a guess what they are. Um, Australia and <laughs> New Zealand. <laughs> New Zealand. Yeah, right. It's, it's funny that I, there are a couple of times in this podcast re recently I've, I've had cause to uh, declare my love for New Zealand. Yeah. Love it as a yeah. country. Do you get to go there? Yeah, I do. I, I do, yeah. I've been to, I go to New Zealand a fair bit, yeah. Beautiful, isn't it? They're, not only have they got a fantastic rugby team, they, their yeah. one-day cricket team is pretty good to watch. They've got one of the best political leaders in the world right now, they're uh, they're a beautiful country, but that's not what this podcast is about. Tell us. I hope about it's not about cricket, if you don't mind me no, saying, David. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, if we talk specifically about the cricket, it'll give away <laughs> when we're recording this, and and read and listeners will realise how long I keep these things in the can. <laughs> so it. let's not get specific. But um, tell us about the Institute of Managers and Leaders, because what I want to get out of this conversation today is a really thorough kind of overview talk about leadership and how we develop as leaders. You've written a fantastic book. Well, actually, you've organized a fantastic book. You've got a number of contributors where you you outline the seven attributes of a leader. We won't necessarily go through those because I'm interested from your point of view in your role as CEO of an institute like this, how we develop and what leadership is all about and what are those barriers for us growing into the best leader we can be. Start by telling me about the institute that you yeah. run. Yeah, sure. Well, look, I'll I'll, um, I'll get straight to the point on the Institute. So the Institute of Managers and Leaders is the old 
Australian Institute of Management. So we we were created as AIM, and many of your listeners will have heard of AIM, of course. And uh, we are the membership side of AIM. So uh, we're a 77-year-old institute. We're the oldest management and leadership institute in the world and probably the most respected. Um, so we have a very heavy research base. We do a lot of research. I have a team of people that are focused on research in Sydney. And essentially, we advocate for sound management and leadership practice. And I suppose it's encapsulated in our vision statement. And um, I'm a huge believer in vision statements, by the way, because I think they set the tone of the organization and they let potential customers and people, the community, know what your organization is all about. And I think that we have one of the most powerful vision statements that I've come across in my working life. So our vision statement is creating better managers and leaders for a better society. So what we believe is that we're in the business of actually creating, so doing something to improve management and leadership competence and skill. We believe that management and leadership competence and skill, as practiced in the workplace, has an impact not only in the workplace, but outside of the workplace. And um, so we believe that if you can be a better manager and leader at work, you take those skills, those competencies, those attributes outside of the workplace and you implement them at home and in society and in the community. And therefore, there is this merging of the workplace and the broader society, the greater good. And that's what the Institute's about, raising management and leadership competence. So developing as a leader is much more about much more than just being a leader, isn't it? As important as being a leader is. There was a, a phrase from your website, and, and it's in your book as well, that jumped out at me. And it says that we believe that great managers and leaders make decisions that impact people's lives and that this impact is felt well beyond the workplace. When I run programs and, and speak with groups, I always talk about the fact that, hey, you know, we're going to do some great stuff here. We're going to engage in great content and, and, and have some really good conversations. And if you're not careful, some of this will not just make you a better leader, but it will make you a better dad or a better mother, a better husband, father, wife, all of those things, the, the other roles that you play in your life. It's a really lovely concept, but is there a chance that we're putting too much pressure on that concept of leadership and the fact that, that we're using this place in a professional setting to leverage your being as a as a human in in your whole life. No, no, I, I actually think it's I think it's the opposite of that, David. I I don't think we're putting enough pressure. I don't think we're putting enough pressure on the skills and the attributes, the talents of managers and leaders. I think organisations have ignored it for too long. So I think it's the opposite of that. I think we need to expect more of our organisations and expect more of our managers and leaders for that very reason, that they take those skills. The skills of management and leadership are no different to the skills that you need to be a better corporate citizen. I believe that it's the opposite of that, that we should expect more leadership development, more focus on people being better in the workplace. And therefore, we will get better workplaces, but we'll get better communities, we'll get more connectivity in communities, we'll get better dads, we'll get better mums, we'll get a better wives, husbands, girlfriends, all of those different things. I think there is a merging of work life and non-work life, and that is seen through management and leadership. We believe that if we can create better managers and leaders, that will have an impact outside of the workplace. So when I sit in, in this room and, and do this podcast, I speak to a lot of fantastic guests, people like yourself, people who have written books about a, a certain component of leadership or a skill within leadership. You can see my pile of books that I have over there of interviews I've, I've yet to come. I form this almost idealistic view about leadership and growing as a person and growing as a professional. It all seems to make so much sense. And then when I go into my client setting and I'm I'm amongst those who are working day to day and I see all of those other pressures, it kind of sometimes feels as though, geez, I, now I get why this is such a, a kind of intangential experience for you because you have back-to-back -back meetings. You've got all these deadlines. You've got PowerPoint packs being made in every corner of this office that you're supposed to read and pass comment on. It's almost like once you get into the real life of an organization and, and leaders who are within it and people who are members of teams, 
that idealistic view of growth and leadership development that I form when I think about this stuff contextually, it fades away and, and you see the importance of just getting stuff done and putting out fires and, and hitting deadlines. What are the blockers for us in organizations when you talk about the fact that we don't put enough pressure on leaders because it is such a pivotal opportunity, not just for the organization, but for us as humans? What are those things that stop us at work? Even if we agree with all of these wonderful concepts, what are the things that stop us from actually making it happen, from remembering those key things when it matters and actioning them? So I think that's a really, really interesting question. Okay. So if we approach that from an organizational or corporate perspective, what I think stops organizations from is sometimes time and and I talk in presentations that I do about this idea of the accidental manager, and um, that will resonate with many of your listeners who are either working for accidental managers or been one themselves. But I think many organizations have not yet fully defined what they need out of a leader or a manager. And we can talk about the difference between managers and leaders, and you know that's been debated and there's books been written on it. But look, you know, let's use those words relatively interchangeably for now. I don't think organizations put enough time in working out what they need from a manager and a leader and what it means to be a good manager and a leader in their organization. I don't think enough organizations have made the cultural connection between individuals and managers and leaders and what their organization does and says and espouses. And typically, why accidental managers become managers is that organizations promote them when they're not ready to be managers and leaders. And so, I emphasize when I talk about the accidental manager that in the vast majority of cases, an accidental manager becomes an accidental manager through no fault of their own. They're a technical expert and they get promoted. Mm. And they get promoted because the organization is doing them and the rest of the organization a disservice. And it's typically through laziness. We're too busy. We've spotted the right technical expert. We'll just make them a manager and a leader. So here is what I fundamentally believe. I believe that management and leadership is a profession. I think it is as much as a pro- of a profession as an engineer, as a lawyer, as a doctor. All of those professions are held up as being something innate in themselves. I think we as a community need to start having that expectation of our managers and leaders and have that expectation of our organizations, our businesses, our workplaces. I think they need to start recognizing management and leadership as a profession. And the way I sum that up is by saying this. These organizations will trust their financial accounts only with professionals. They'll trust their dollars and cents only with professionals. And yet they trust their, dreadful word coming up here, human capital, with anybody, (laughs) not with professionals. That for me is complete madness. It is the wrong way round. We're valuing the wrong things and we need to start valuing management and leadership as a professional skill. As soon as organizations do do that, I think it changes the game because all of a sudden you have expectations of managers and leaders, the same expectations, by the way, as you have of accountants. Why do we have those expectations of accountants and lawyers, but not as managers and leaders? So I think organizations need to review the way They promote people, they train people, they develop people and review their expectations of their managers and leaders. And it's not good enough for organizations to blame the people that they put into management and leadership positions for the carnage they cause if they're not professionalized. That idea of the accidental manager has gotten so much airtime in my podcast over the years because it is the most common challenge that we see in organizations. And the cliche is someone who's good at a technical thing, someone who's good at doing engineering or being a teacher or being an accountant or whatever it might be, you're good at that. Now we're going to take you off doing that and we're going to get you to manage other people who are doing that. And typically the skills that you need to manage people are in many ways diametrically the opposite skills that you have needed to be a technical expert. Or at the very least, completely unrelated. Completely unrelated, yeah. I mean, interestingly, um, so we have what we call the antidote to the accidental manager. So we we have a, a concept that is the opposite, the antidote to the accidental manager, and that is the intentional leader. So we believe 
I saw that as a program on your website. Well, not only is it a program, but we actually own that phrase. So if anybody uses that, we've trademarked that phrase. So we believe in that our purpose as an institute is to end the chaos of the accidental manager, the chaos caused by the accidental manager, and replace that chaos with what we call the impact of the intentional leader. We believe that there is a way of defining intentional leadership and there are things that you, your organization can do to create intentional leaders rather than accidental managers. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. I'm going to ask you about creating intentional leaders in a minute. I love the phrase and uh, I'm jealous that you've, you've, <laughs> you own that. That's, that's unkind to the rest of us in the field. But trying to change that pattern must be a really difficult thing for organizations because in any industry, in any organization that I've ever been a part of, it's kind of expected that if I do a certain amount of time in this role, eventually I will go up the ladder and I will become a manager. I will do this. So because I have this technical skill, you're going to take me off that technical skill and get me to do something completely unrelated that I might balls up. But that's what's expected in our organizations. So tell us about how organizations go about changing that cultural expectation of progress and tell us at the same time, what are those attributes of an intentional leader? How do you make that happen? Yeah, sure. This is two. I mean, just answering those two questions, David, we can be here for the next <laughs> 24 hours. No, um, in a sense, you know, we're back to the whole conversation at the beginning about names. You're absolutely right. The conventional way of progressing through organizations is, you know, you for some reason end up in a technical expertise or an, an area of technical expertise. You know, that could be through your degree, you know, your apprenticeship or training or something that kind of tickled your fancy, you know, and you end up doing something, marketing, purchasing, engineering, whatever, and then you become really, really good at it. And then you seem for some reason to be on a pathway towards management and leadership. Right. That, I believe, is an old model of the workforce. And that model of the workforce has to change because technical expertise is no guarantee of management competence and leadership competence. And good progressive, inquisitive organizations are starting to see that and realize that. And by the way, they're doing that because the stats and the chaos caused by the accidental manager is very, very obvious. You know, mental health issues, absenteeism, retention rates of staff. Those organizations that are having problems in those areas, those are typically problems of leadership. So smart, savvy Leaders, general managers, leaders, CEOs, directors are starting to question that stepped, laddered pathway from technical expertise to manager. Now, by the way, I, I don't think that that progression, that traditional progression is particularly wrong if there's development put in place yeah, yeah. to prevent the accidental manager. It's where there's no development put in place that it's just seen as a pathway mm -hmm. through to management and leadership. Which in so many organizations it is. Oh, and it is. Yeah, that's absolutely right. The smart organizations, and there are many of them, and, and we have about 1,500 corporate members. So we have about 12,000 individual members and about 1,500 corporate members. Those organizations that we deal with are seeing that that pathway is broken and they're doing something about it, which brings us on to the intentional leader. I mean, the, the key thing about the intentional leader is that word intent. So intent is about this desire to take action, to intend to do something. So organizations that want to review this pathway towards accidental manager are actually breaking it by saying, okay, well, we need to do something different. Similarly, managers and leaders who are technical experts in themselves and are on the verge or have become accidental managers are saying, we want to do something different. We want to intend to be a leader, take action. So for us as an institute, management and improving management and leadership competence is about taking action, taking responsibility for your own development and taking action and doing a certain number of things. And we can talk about what we think some of those things are, but we have distilled it down to around about six things that people can do to become intentional leaders. 
And um, I have a pre- I have a presentation that I do an awful lot actually at conferences called the six layers of intentional leadership. We believe that there are six things, and some of them are relatively complicated. So it's not kind of you know twee and easy to describe, but there are six broad things that managers and leaders can do to become intentional. What are those six things? You know that that's the question, and I yeah. know you you probably feel as though you can't do them just as quickly. But yeah. just give us a, a little well, bit of insight to the overview of those. Six. So I'll, I'll give you I'll give you a, a flavor of a couple of them. Yeah. Mm. So the first one, and by the way, we did some research around this. So we we asked all of our membership, corporate members and individual members, a variety of questions about what it means to become an intentional leader, and then we distilled the answers down to six very broad areas. Okay, so one of them, I'll just pick, I'll go all over the place here. I'll pick one of them. We believe that intentional leaders believe strongly in mentoring. So we see mentoring as being at the heart of intentional leadership. And studies have shown that those managers and leaders that have mentors tend to perform better. And indeed, there was a study done, I think it was at Harvard in 2014, that found a correlation between the CEOs of large Wall Street organizations that have mentors and the success of the business that they lead. So we believe that mentoring sits at the heart of intentional leadership. Find a mentor, get yourself a mentor, have one or two mentors, because actually management and leadership is lonely. And in order to get over that loneliness, find yourself a mentor. And we see a mentor as being slightly different from a business coach or something like that. We see mentoring as sitting at the heart of management and leadership. That's one of them. So one of the layers of intentional leadership is go get yourself a mentor. Very simple. I find the whole mentoring thing really interesting because a great mentor is a great relationship. Yeah. And we know that a lot of organizations place a value on mentoring. So what do they do? They create a system. And they assign people and they say, here, Bob, here is your mentor, Sally. Yeah. And you're supposed to form this artificial relationship yeah. in a systematic or a, you know, a systematized type way, something that should actually be more beautiful mm. and more personal than that, the true finding of a mentor-mentoree relationship. How do you feel about organizations that put a system around that? Is it better than not having it at all? Look, I'm I'm slightly torn on the on the answer to that because I I do think, so I have a couple of mentors. I have one that's been assigned. My organization, the Institute, has a mentoring scheme. An arranged marriage. It is a bit like an arranged marriage, but so we have a matching system where someone can request, so our mentoring program is called Member Exchange, and it sits at the heart of our membership offering, and it's free. So as a, as a member of IML, you can request and get a mentor. And we have a matching system, and we do it on the basis of this is what I'm looking for. These are the skills that I'm looking for. So I would say it's it's in a sense kind of soft forced. It's not an organization coming along saying you need a mentor and this is what you're having. Mm. This is the person you're having. So we have, you know, you request a certain number of areas that you're looking for a mentor in. And then our mentors also put forward their skills and then we do a matching process. And I have a couple of staff members that are responsible for matching. Sounds a bit like Tinder or some kind of dating <laughs> thing, doesn't it? So <laughs> it's kind of Tinder for mentoring, you know. Yeah. But equally, I also have another mentor who is a respected person in my life who was a previous boss, and we naturally gel and naturally get on with each other. Mm. And that person in my life is a natural mentor. I kind of think it's, again, horses for courses, whatever works for you. If you don't have one of those relationships and you haven't built up that kind of trusting relationship with someone you admire then perhaps the more forced way of doing it is the only access you better have to it. Not. So it's better than not having it. So I'm a it bit- It might work so, out really nicely. Yeah, I'm a bit neutral on what is what works best for you. So another one of the layers of leadership, Please. and here's a slightly controversial one. So we believe that at the heart of intentional leadership is this acceptance that you're on a journey of improvement, Okay. And this brings us to what I believe is one of the most important concepts in management and leadership at the moment. And it contrasts with what everybody else thinks is an important part of management and leadership at the moment. So we're going to get slightly controversial here. So we believe that at the heart of intentional leadership is self-awareness. We believe that managers, good managers and leaders have an absolute desire to be more self-aware, more aware of themselves and their impact on others. 
Now, I contrast that with the concept of authenticity, which, by the way, in my presentation, I describe as one of the most Mickey Mouse artificial psychological constructs that's ever been invented. Ooh. I rebel against this concept of authenticity and I contrast it with the, con with the idea of self-awareness. I think one is a very rich process that managers and leaders go through and the other is essentially a baby punching the air with a meme on Instagram. You know, you need to be authentic. So the problem with authenticity for me is that you can be authentically bad. And being authentic, this idea that I am being my true self, I am showing you who I am and this is me, is absolutely fantastic. But what happens if you're not very good? Yeah. What happens if we don't you want to see the real you? If yeah, if the real you is an absolutely dreadful leader. And too many times in management and leadership, you see an example of dreadful management, and then you hear the person say, Well, I'm just being myself. Authentic. Well, that's not good enough. Go and improve. <laughs> yeah. Be better. Yeah. Be, and our, develop some self-awareness about develop, the impact you're having. Develop some self-awareness. And you know, I don't want to I don't want to talk political in this podcast at all, but far too many of our political leaders are sitting there saying, Well, this is me, this is the real me. Well, go it's, and not, be, it's not pretty. It's not good. Go and yeah. be better. Yeah. So what I think is a much richer, more complex, and much more difficult. So by the way, nobody ever said that becoming an intentional leader is easy. It absolutely isn't easy, but the outcome is a much richer experience as a human being and as a manager and a leader. So we believe that managers and leaders to become intentional should be on a journey of self-awareness. What does that mean? You need to put in place 360 degree feedback in your, your organization. And if a lot of your, your listeners will be nodding their head and saying, oh yeah, we do that. Well, you need to work towards open 360 degree feedback so it's not just every now and then. Well, all when the time. I say open, I mean not anonymous. Right. Okay. So that uh, now, yeah, when I yeah. say that in in conferences, I did a conference last week at the W Hotel gasps. here in Brisbane. There were gasps. Yeah. Uh, you know, I you know, I don't want people to know what feedback I've given them, and people, I don't want people, I don't want to know who's given me feedback. Well, my response to that is, well, why not? Don't you want to be in a dialogue with people? Don't you want to know what people think of your leadership style, think of your decision making and know why they think that? So at IML, we have a system of open 360. Now, you would expect this, of course, we're a leadership institute and I like to think that we practice what we preach. So we have a system of open 360 degree feedback. So I'll give you a very classic example. I've just recently, about two months ago, had my appraisal with my board of directors. I'm the CEO. And How'd the board, you go? Well, I thought I was doing great. <laughs> um, but we have open 360 degree feedback. So 12 members of staff were chosen at random and they provided IML 360. We have a, an IML 360 degree feedback tool. They provided that feedback. I believe that one of my strengths as a CEO is that I'm very, very strategic. And I believe I'm very good at explaining strategy. I've written a book on it and I present on strategy to the Institute. The biggest downfall in my 360 degree feedback from my staff was that I don't explain the strategy enough to them. Wow. And I how know did I, feel? Uh -huh. I know who's given Oh, look, I'll tell you exactly how it made me feel. It made me feel I need to do better at explaining strategy. Yeah, okay. Because feedback's feedback and yeah. it's real and it's how people are feeling. And perhaps I've got complacent, perhaps I know the strategy very well myself. Perhaps I'm very good at communicating it upwards to the board, but I'm not very good at communicating it to the people I really need to be communicating it to. Mm -hmm. So I think part of being a manager and a leader is being able to accept feedback and being able to analyze why you're not very good at accepting feedback. Is that something that's, you know, comes from something that happened at school or at uni or whatever? We need to be on that journey of self. No, of course, those people that gave me that feedback no longer work for yeah, me. Of course. <laughs> Goes without saying. <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, that, of course, just for your readers, is absolutely a joke. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think feedback is a really rich way of going on a journey of self-improvement. I read a great article just a little while ago. I've referenced it a few times on the podcast since, actually. It was a nice little peeling back of some of the myths that exist within fallacy. I don't know, within feedback. I don't know if you've read this one, the feedback fallacy. Is it about Marcus to contradict everything I've just said? <laughs> he talks about the fact that because all of our 
efforts to give feedback to other people are completely flavored by ourselves and our own experience, then really what we're doing is giving feedback on ourselves. Yeah, right. And he gives this wonderful analogy. He said, so given that, if, if you accept that we are largely blind to the skills and abilities of other people yeah. because we're so into ourselves, he said, asking someone for feedback on you is like asking a colorblind person mm. to explain how red and beautiful this flower is to me. And then accepting what the colorblind person says, even though we know they're colorblind. And he said, it's even worse than that. We then get five or 10 other colorblind people to give us their impression of this red flower. And then we average their comments yeah. and decide that that's what the flower looks like. So when you get that type of feedback, there is some level of awareness in you that sure, that's, that's feedback on me and my ability to communicate strategy, but it's also feedback through the lens and the filters and yeah. the experience of everyone who's given you that. I think that's absolutely right. So I think the process of self-awareness is not necessarily, and certainly as a manager and a leader, we should caution against changing things on the basis of feedback. However, I think it's slightly more, I think the whole area of self-awareness is slightly more nuanced and complex than that. So for example, in my appraisal, back onto this example of, of strategy, that came across loud and clear. It wasn't just one person. There were a number of people. And no, you're absolutely right. They all bring their own experiences. But if seven out of 12 people have said, Dave's not very good at explaining strategy, there might be something. There has to be something in it. Mm. So, what I think a, a good manager and a leader, and I, I'm not necessarily classing myself as that, but this is what I did I went and checked. And I didn't only check with those seven people because I know what they think. I went to check with other people. And one of the things that came across was, I am very good at explaining strategy when I explain it. I perhaps don't explain it enough. So it might not be that it might be that I'm not not good at explaining strategy. I'm just not, not doing it frequently enough, and things become unclear, and you know life moves on and the organization moves on. What I've implemented since then is regular strategy updates, and some of those may be voluntary, some may be compulsory or staff meetings. So I think you're right. There's a nuance behind it. But I think for me, what comes across is if you're on the a journey of self-awareness, if you want to understand better, you take on board feedback and you question and then you implement change where it's appropriate. So I think saying that feedback is a fallacy is just a little bit of a oversimplification. Mm. What I'm not, definitely not saying is as soon as you hear something bad, you quickly change. Mm -hmm. I think you go into an investigation process because... It's this view that what you want to do as a manager and leader is improve, be better. And the only way to be better is to find out what people think of what you're doing at the moment. So self-awareness sits at the heart of good management and leadership. Now, you're, you're in the middle of giving away some of your, your best intellectual property to me, <laughs> yeah. which I love. And you're talking us through the six layers of intentional leadership. And I know you don't want to talk through all six. You can't give them justice in in this setting, but you've told us about mentoring. We had a good chat about that. We've just talked about being on that intentional journey of self-awareness, which I really love. Give me the one more, one of the of the four remaining, what's the most powerful of those yeah. four about this intentional leadership? I mean, because I, I answer so quickly, it sounds like we've set these questions up and we genuinely haven't. <laughs> um, it's just that I could talk about intentional leadership for a long, long time. So I'll tell you that what I think is the most powerful one, and it's, it's something that quite close to my heart because I've just done it myself, actually. So we believe that one of the key factors of intentional leadership is around reflection. And um, I think reflection is one of the most undervalued and underutilized management traits or skills or, or whatever you want to class it as. I don't think we reflect enough. I think we live in that kind of world where everything's immediate and uh, we've, you know, we tend to have quite low, quite short attention spans. You know, we we swipe right or whatever we're doing, or we move Instagram, you know, up and down the Instagram feed. I don't think we spend enough time reflecting as managers and leaders. And for me, in management and leadership, reflection is around asking yourself that question, what could I or should I have done differently? And I think we bounce from one thing to the other. I know that I do, and I'm sure many of your listeners do. But I believe, and, and the Institute believes, that reflection lies at the heart of management and leadership, we should be asking ourselves much more often, 
what would I or could I have done differently? And the reason for that is there is, we may not realize it, but much of management and leadership is repetition. We tend to do the same things lots and lots of times. Either it's with different people or different situations, but there tends to be a theme and a pattern of management and leadership. And if we reflect, the next time we come to that situation, we may do it differently, we may do it better. And that's why, by the way, we advocate for the chartered manager designation. So the Institute is in a long-term strategic alliance with the Chartered Management Institute in the UK. And this comes back to my view that management and leadership is a profession. So for the first time in Australia and New Zealand, you can become a chartered manager. Just as you can become a chartered accountant, a chartered engineer, we believe that managers and leaders should professionalize their skill by taking the charter. I've just become chartered myself. Now, why does that link to reflection? Because right at the heart of the chartered process, the process to become a chartered manager is reflection. The entire chartered designation is based around the idea that managers and leaders reflect. What does that mean? It means that you have to go through a process of answering questions and being interviewed. And the vast majority of that is around talking through management and leadership situations you've been in and reflecting on what you did and what you could have done differently. And that sits at the heart of the chartered designation. I've just become chartered myself. And it was an incredibly rich and rewarding experience because I had to reflect on what I'd done, why I'd done it, and what I could possibly do differently were I faced with the same situation again. It's incredibly rewarding. I really like that idea of being a chartered manager. It's it's a beautiful concept. And as you say, it professionalizes it this and it, it, it highlights how important it is that you're not just an experienced technician. Your yeah. profession now is as a manager or as a and leader. And at the heart of it, David, is a code of ethics. Mm. So let's not underestimate how powerful that is. For the first time in management and leadership in general, not just in your organization, not just, you know, a a list of rules that your organization has. For the first time, there is a code of ethics that you sign up to as a chartered manager that if you do not follow, we will take the charter off you. Kick you out. Yep. You're out. Exactly the same as being a chartered accountant. For the first time, you can become a chartered manager. It's chartered through the Privy Council, whoever they are, in the UK. Sounds impressive. <laughs> it does That's, sound impressive, yeah, doesn't, doesn't it? it? But for the first time, what we're saying is, you can become a professional manager and a leader. You can use the designated letters after your name, CMGR. You can go along in an interview. You can go along to your managers and your leaders at work and you can say, I've just chartered my management and leadership capability and I've signed a code of ethics. And by the way, there's the code of ethics. That's very impressive. Hey, in that answer, when you were talking about reflection, you alluded to this fast-paced world that we all live in flicking between Facebook and Instagram and my emails and everything else that I check and the news feed that I that I read, it's our attention is changing almost to the point where I catch myself doing this sometimes. It's almost like I can't finish a thought. Sometimes I just get too busy. I get distracted in the middle of a thought and I don't complete it. I put it on hold. It's like I open a different app and go down another path. What's your process, your personal process of ensuring rich reflection and meaningful ref- reflection? Yeah, sure. That's again, a great question. And I could talk again for a long time. So I believe that managers and leaders, and actually, I actually believe that people in general, people in the workplace, I think um, it's really important that people have resilience plans. And um, by the way, my, my institute can assist people in putting resilience plans together. We have a process that we go through. So I think resilience planning is really important. And resilience planning for me is about setting up, setting yourself up to be in the right frame of mind to cope with the workplace and everyday life. So I have my own resilience plan. I'm very happy to share what that is. So I have in the past suffered from, I was going to say mental illness. I I think that's probably right. So I had an anxiety disorder that was actually related to the workplace. I worked for a law firm and I found myself not wanting to go into work. And I've told this story many times in the Institute and at conferences and stuff. Um, I used to sit on Winyard Station and not want to go to work because sitting on Winyard Station was much less anxiety-inducing and stressful than going into the law firm. I got some help with that. 
from a clinical psych and I ended up with a resilience plan. Uh, that was about 15 years ago and I still have that resilience plan today. For me, that involves knowing what flicks my anxiety switch. Knowing your triggers. Knowing my triggers. That's the word I was looking for. And doing things to prevent those triggers triggering. For me, it's about physical activity and running. I'm now, unfortunately, for my wife and my family, an obsessive marathon runner. So since I overcame that anxiety disorder, I've run 30 marathons, 29 actually. I'm running the Berlin Marathon in six weeks. Nice. That will be my 30th marathon. That's amazing. So I, so I run an awful lot and running for me does a number of things. Interestingly, I absolutely, utterly detest a number of things. I detest yoga. I detest massage and I detest Pilates. But what works for me doesn't work for other people. So I have members of my team that are right into all of those things. So as a leadership team at IML, we, we all know each other's resilience plans and we know what triggers our own stress and our own, own anxiety. My team know that if I don't run three or four times a week, things happen with me. What that, happens? What happens when you don't run? Um, well, first of all, physically, I get significant back pain. But I also get quite stressed and I get quite, I'm not going to say angry, but I get slightly more irritable. Irritable. That's the word. And certainly my wife recognizes that and my kids I and my kids frequently point it out to me. <laughs> um, Go for a rundown. Well, the interesting thing is what I say to my team and what I say to myself, that's not such a silly thing to say, is that the very first thing that I do when I put my diary together for the week is I put my runs in. That comes before anything because I know if I don't put those things in, the rest of the week doesn't look good mm -hmm. for me or for other people. And what I say to my team is, you must put the things in your diary that help you cope with everything else that's going in your diary, with all of your, you know, your multitasking and your thoughts and your meetings and all of that kind of stuff. You have to cope with all that by putting the stuff in your diary, whether it's Pilates, mindfulness. All of those kind of things. It's more that than coping, though, isn't it? It's, it's thrive. It, it yeah. enables you to thrive, That's not right. just cope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. And it's amazing for so many of us that the thing that, that helps us reflect and the thing that keeps us grounded, our, our resilience plan, whether you think of it in those yeah. terms or not, but we all have one informally yeah. or or formally, I, well, we, I don't know that we do. Yeah, well, that's that's right. That's right, do. and that's that. Yeah, you're right, and that's the point I'm coming to. For those of us who do and understand the importance of it in our life, it's kind of glaring when we come across those who don't. And it comes up in lots of different ways. You can talk about it in different ways. There's that third place concept, you know, having a having a third place outside of work and family where you belong yeah. and you get fulfillment and you, it makes you feel physically and emotionally good. Having a crutch and anything like that and running is obviously that for you. It's I feel sad for people who tell me that they're too busy to pick up that hobby that they long for or, or do that exercise that they know they'd like to do. I feel sad for those people. And, you know, you must come across that in your work as a, as a leadership development expert. How do you encourage people to, to flick off Netflix at 9.30 at night and go to bed so they can go for that run rather than watching that one extra episode? Well, I... I um I'm going to answer that question in a slightly different way, David. I'll say this, right? So if if that person's thriving mechanism is to watch Netflix mm. and sit and watch Netflix, yeah. so I, I, I'll turn this around and I'll say this. I feel sad for organizations that haven't set themselves up to recognize that their role is to allow their managers and leaders and their staff to thrive. Mm. So my view is that... Our job as managers and leaders is to allow people to make the best decisions possible. I pay my staff to make good decisions. Okay, that's really all my job is. My job is to set up an environment where the other staff of I at IML are positioned to make good decisions. Now, if you as a manager and a leader recognize that that's your core function, I think it changes everything. I have to sit there and think, okay, how am I allowing my team to make the best decisions? Because that's what they're paid to do. And if they make good decisions, the organization will thrive and be better and make more money and all of those kind of things, get more members or whatever. My job is to allow them to make good decisions. So am I doing that? Am I, let's get down to a really granular level here. Am I calling meetings at the best time for my staff? Because my best time to have it, I get up at 3.30 every morning and I go for a run. You call a meeting with me after four o'clock in the afternoon and I am totally useless. 
because I'm up so early. Mm -hmm. So why would I not understand when the rest of my team are set to thrive? Mm. Why would I want to have a meeting at three o'clock in the afternoon if one of my staff members says I'm dreadful at three o'clock in the afternoon? I'm not setting her up to succeed. I'm setting her up to fail. I feel sad for organizations that don't see that that is their role. Their role is to allow their staff to set their staff up, to set the environment up so that their staff make good decisions because good decisions leads to good business. We've quickly run out of time, David. This no. has been an absorbing <laughs> conversation. I'd love to grill you for the remaining three <laughs> layers go for a run. of industrial leadership, <laughs> of, of intentional leadership, industrial leadership, poor handwriting. I'd love to grill you for those, but we don't have time. Look, at, at the heart of our conversation, what's, what's emerged is that dichotomy between the old-fashioned way of progressing through an organization because you're good at your technical skill, as opposed to this intentional leadership concept. And I really like that. I'm going to ask you a question on that in a minute to close out. But one thought I had along the way, you know, this default position we have of technicians needing to become a manager or a leader to progress, I wonder how can we reward them in different ways and encourage them, those who are who are inclined to be fabulous technicians and take it to the next level, how can we encourage them to stay in that technical area and and pull down this this myth or this assumption that in order to progress in your career, you've got to actually leave that behind? and go and become a leader because we're actually, there's a lot of opportunity cost here. If our best technicians are stepping away- There's no technicians left. Different, <laughs> there's, there's no great technicians yeah, left. We're right. costing ourselves a lot of that. So this intentional leadership concept is fabulous, but what do we, what do, we do on the other side about in, telling people it's cool to remain a technician? That's a fantastic way to live your career. Oh, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And in actual fact- this idea that everybody wants to be a manager and leader, whether a great one or a terrible one, is is absolute nonsense. It's flawed. It is, it is flawed. And I don't think at any point I would say that or the Institute would say that. What I believe is for those people that see themselves on that pathway towards management and leadership, there are things that they need to do to progress along that pathway. But crucially, I believe that managers and leaders need to understand the motivation of their staff. That's for me is the number one thing that a manager and a leader needs to do. And I think if you do that, you understand that some people are quite happy being a technical specialist and that's okay. You can provide them with opportunities if they would like to do other things. But I think a manager and a leader's key role is to understand the motivation of their staff. And too few managers and leaders understand that. Too few managers and leaders sit down with their staff and say, what switches you on? What do you want to do? Where do you see yourself going? We don't have those personal conversations with our staff and we need to. We need to fully understand what switches people on, what turns people off, what motivates people, what demotivates people, what makes people tired, what makes people angry. That is our role as managers and leaders to understand the people that we're managing and leading. That for me is fundamentally the role. Look, that is a really nice way to leave this. David Pish, I have really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for coming along. So have I. Thank you very much. And that was David Pish. I hope I got that right. David is a man quite clearly used to engaging and entertaining an audience. I could have chatted with him for hours. Of all the topics we covered, the idea of the accidental leader stands out to me. We all know it, and it's a constant theme on this podcast, the technical expert promoted to a management role. It's a well-worn path, but not necessarily the best for individuals and organizations to take. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with David on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalog of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.